And if you have your Bibles, I would like you to take them and turn to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. And today we'll be starting a new sermon series going from 1 Peter and then back to the Old Testament to look at Esther chapter 1. And if you're there, and if you're able, would you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. It's a somewhat long passage today, but I ask that you would follow along with me and uh, give your ear. Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to, queen, uh, to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. 
and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and he did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Thank you. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, I ask that today you would give your word power. Lord, as it, as it is preached, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes. Lord, give life and light to our minds and that Jesus would be glorified. God, we ask this in his name, in your son's name, we pray. Amen. Now, today we're beginning our new sermon series in the book of Esther. And if you've been with us before, you know that we were in 1 Peter before this. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why not 2 Peter? I mean, wouldn't 2 Peter follow 1 Peter? But I hope you can see the connection that we're trying to make. If you remember when we were in 1 Peter, the themes of suffering and exile were constantly being brought about. It seemed like every other week we were talking about suffering and being in exile. But we see, as we come here to this first book of Esther, we see exile once again. You see, this is not a new concept for the people of God. Throughout all of history, God's people find themselves in exile. When we were in First Peter, we talked about God's promise of his sovereignty. We talked about his providence, and we talked about our duties while being in exile. And here, as we come to the book of Esther, we will see an example of God's people being in exile, and we will see an example of God's providence. We will see an example of our duties in exile, and we will see an example of God's sovereignty and his care for his people while they are in exile. Now, as we look at this land of exile today, I want to ask you a question. And that question is, what do you see when you look at the land that you are in exile in? When you look at this world, what does it look like to you? Does it look appealing? Does it look maybe terrifying? Does it look overwhelming? In this first chapter of Esther, we see that when the inspired writer saw this land of exile, what he saw was vanity. He saw vanity, both in splendor and vanity in power. Vanity first in splendor and vanity in power. Now, before we begin, who are the characters in this book? Where are they from? What are they doing here? I think for a lot of us, when we look at the Old Testament, we see a lot of stories, mostly in the Middle East, and there's a lot of biblical characters, mostly Jewish people, but we sort of forget how they're all woven together as one story. Well, if we remember a sort of summarized timeline, God brings his people out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. He places them in the promised land. He gives them his law, instructions on how to live now 
as his redeemed and covenant people. But what do they do? Well, throughout the years, Israel many times rebels against God, and he sends them prophets. They disregard their prophets, and eventually, God sends his people into exile. The north goes to Assyria, and the south goes to Babylon. Well, eventually, the Persian Empire replaces the Babylonian Empire. And at that time, many of the Jewish people went back to Jerusalem, but there were still many who were still in exile. And those are the people that we will find in this book. This was their land of exile in the Persian Empire. And we will see as we look at this land of exile that it is vain. The splendor that we see is vain. The power that we see in this first chapter is vain. So let us first look at how the land of exile is vain in its splendor. This scene opens up with King Ahasuerus showing all of his greatness. He reigned from India to Ethiopia. In your minds, think Pakistan to Sudan. And he has this elaborate feast for all of his officials and eventually for everyone in the capital. Verse 4 says that he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And that wasn't enough. After these 180 days, there's a grand finale to this elaborate, over-the-top show-and-tell that this king is putting on. For seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace were decorations of colors and silver and precious stones are shown for all to see. The king says, drink all you want. Enjoy my splendor. Look at all of the amazing things that I have to offer. Enjoy it all. Don't hold back. Now, as we look at this setting, I think many times we can look at this and we can see the world that we are in exile in. It doesn't sound very different. Now, when I say the world of exile, I'm not talking about creation. I'm not talking about the trees that we see out the window. I'm not talking about the dirt on the ground, the mountains or the seas. No, I'm talking about the world that we see that is opposed to God. I'm talking about the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the world of sin that is opposed to God. Just like the land of exile that we find here in Esther 1, the world can seem so splendorous to us. It can look like it's full, like filled with such great beauty and amazing things that we should indulge ourselves in. But we see here that it is vanity. I remember the first time that I ever saw Times Square in New York City. I actually found Times Square by accident, if you can believe it. A friend of mine, we were, we were in New Jersey visiting a church, and we were trying to find the store, so we were just following our GPS. And we were following the arrows, and eventually we turn a corner, we go through a tunnel, and now we're stuck in the city. We had no idea we were going to get there. Uh, there was no place to park, so we parked just any random place, and we walked to the store. But then on the way back, we got lost. We couldn't find the car. And we had no smartphones yet. We were just wandering around trying to find our car in New York City. And then at one point, I said, wait, I think we're in Times Square. 
Now, how did I know we were in Times Square? I had never been there before. But I recognized all of those advertisements. Times Square really makes sure that you know you're in Times Square. Right? It's this huge open area with advertisements of food, drinks, pleasure, entertainment, everything that the city has to offer. It advertises to you the ideal existence. If you could enjoy life, Times Square shows you how to do it. Now, if you've ever seen Times Square, you know that there's advertisements for good restaurants. There's advertisements for great shows you can take your children to. Right? A lot of these things, they're not inherently wicked. They themselves are not bad. In fact, if we look here at Esther 1, golden cups, food, drinks, fun, those things aren't inherently wicked. But it's the holding up of these things and saying, this is life. This is the ideal existence. That's where the sin comes in. That's where the idolatry comes in. As Tim Keller says, idolatry is taking good things and making them ultimate things. Taking good things, but making them life. The purpose for all of your existence. But scripture tells us that this way of thinking is vanity. Listen to these words from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Notice how it speaks of the world and its desires as things that are passing away. If we, if we place our love in things that are passing away, then our gods are vain. But if we place our love in the true eternal God, then what we are trusting in is eternal and right. The splendor that this king was showing off, it did not last and the glory that this world shows you will not last. All of the idols that are around us, everything that tempts us, it is in vain. The best job, the best looks, the best amount of comfort you could find, the perfect marriage that would give your life meaning, all of these things that may be good, but are not God. If you place your trust in these things, these things will fail you. Now you may say, well, I can find personal fulfillment in many of these things in my life. But the reality is that even if you were to find some level of personal fulfillment in the things that this world gives you, those things will only follow you to your deathbed. They will not follow you afterwards. They may give you some sort of satisfaction here in this world, but they will not go further than that. Eventually, they will betray you if they don't before your deathbed. That is why we are told not to place our trust in things of this world, things that are passing away, but instead to look beyond the vanity of this world to the things of God, 
God who is eternal. If we think of the Old Testament saints, it says that though they were in exile, people like Abraham, Moses, it says they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If we think of Moses, he didn't love the things of Egypt. Instead, he chose to look past their vanity, to suffer with God's people, looking forward to an eternal city. If we think of Abraham, surrounded by the other nations, he didn't allow himself to love the things of this world, but instead, he looked past the vanity around him to an eternal city made by his God. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we should not be distracted by the things around us. Christians and the people of God always look past the vain things and the vain pleasures of this world, things that are not bad in themselves, things that can be enjoyed, but things that do not deserve our trust, things that can never be our hope. We look past those things to true life, life that is found in Jesus. This first chapter of Esther, it shows how the land of exile is vain in its splendor. The beauty that it shows is vain. But now let us look and see how this land of exile is not only vain in its splendor, but also vain in its power. In Esther chapter 1, the author is describing King Ahasuerus, and he sets him up to be this huge, amazing, powerful king who at the same time is almost a drunken, incompetent ruler. Look who is with him in verse 3. It says, He gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. The inspired writer really wants us to know how powerful and intimidating this man was, a commander of armies, nations who were serving him. This huge empire, look how powerful. But later events will expose where the power truly lies. This is only made more apparent by what happens in verse 11. We see there that the king commands the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Notice that the, king, that the queen disobeys the king and all of a sudden it is exposed for having vain power. She disobeys and the weakness of the regime is exposed. And it's ironic. Notice this king he is saying, look at my riches. Look at my beauty. Look at my empire. Everybody is applauding him and saying, King, you are glorious. Everything you have is amazing. And then the king gets an idea and he says, but wait till you see my wife. And then the wife says, no. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The king's power, his beauty, his party, takes this horrible hit, and he becomes furious. We see that the king 
and the princes, they become worried about their breach of authority. One of the seven princes, Mamukin, says in verse 16, notice the fear behind the words. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Look at all of the alls, the alls that we see. They're so worried that this one breach of authority, this one disobedience is going to take away all the power that they have. This amazing empire they have, this huge amount of power that they have, they're so terrified that it will be lost because the queen disobeyed. You see, it wasn't a sure thing. There was vanity even in this amazing power that it appeared that they have. Notice that they proceed to make a law that every husband is to be the master of his own household. Now notice the twisting of God's creation. I'm sure many of us, when we read this, we start thinking, okay, but wait a second. I thought husbands are supposed to lead their households, right? But notice the twisting of God's good order. It is true that it is God's design that husbands lovingly lead their wives towards holiness. But notice that this law is made so that husbands can unlovingly force their wives towards unholiness. This is not God's plan for a family. This is not God's created order. But in order to hold on to their power, they must twist God's creation. And it is the exact same for the land of exile that we find ourselves in as well. No matter how promising the earthly powers are, no matter how powerful they look, no matter how much control it seems that they have, that power is vain. The Bible tells us that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the Lord's hand, and God turns it wherever he pleases. Although the powers around us, they think they have all this control, at the end of the day, their authority is under God's authority. And what is the Christian response to that? The response is that we do not place our ultimate trust in the powers of this world. But instead, we place our ultimate trust in the powers of God, who is king of heaven and earth. Now, that is not to say that we don't seek to love our neighbor, that we don't seek good in the political sphere. Whenever the powers of this world reflect the justice of God, we praise that. We, we thank the Lord for that. That's a good thing. As we'll see in this book, the Israelites here, they did amazing things in the, in the political sphere. But their trust was never in the political sphere. At the end of the day, our hope is always in our Lord, who is maker of heaven and earth. He holds the king's heart in his hand. And any amount of power that we see in this world, we know that that power ultimately is vain. But this leads us to ask a question. Okay, 
if the powers, or if this world, if its power is vain, if this world, its beauty and splendor is vain, then where? Where is true splendor? Where is true power? A surprise third point. If we look for splendor and power, in Christ's kingdom is true splendor and true power. Though the land of exile is vain in its splendor, and though the land of exile is vain in its power, in Christ's kingdom is true and eternal splendor and true and eternal power. All of these idols that we see around us, they hold themselves up and they say, we are life, live for us. We are the goal of everything that you desire. But the only one who ever said, I am life, live for me, and wasn't lying, was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Think about King Ahasuerus. What did he glory in? What was his trust in? It was in the splendor of his kingdom. It was in the power of his sword. It was in his riches. But his power, his riches, his beautiful decorations did not bring him resurrection. They did nothing for him when he went to his deathbed. But Jesus says, placing your trust in me, coming to me who is life, I will not forsake you when the deathbed comes. I will not leave you at the end of this life. But instead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who trusts in me, who believes in me, will not see death, but instead will see resurrection. In Jesus and in his kingdom is true splendor and true greatness. In Jesus, we see the exact opposite of King Ahasuerus. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no boasting in wickedness. Ahasuerus boasted in all of his wickedness, but Jesus did not boast. There is no fear in corrupt laws put on the people. Instead, in Jesus' kingdom, there are good laws. In Jesus' kingdom, there is love and peace to his people. Instead, when we look at Jesus' kingdom, Jesus was born among animals in a poor family. We don't find him in the capital of a great empire. Jesus surrounded himself with the weak of this world, sinners repentant of their sins, coming to him for the hope of their salvation. He didn't surround himself with great armies and genius scholars like, a, like the king Ahasuerus did. We see the exact opposite. Even Jesus' followers at times couldn't understand what he was trying to do. It was like they wanted a king Ahasuerus, but who was on their side. Even when Jesus was on the cross and above his head, and above his head, there is a sign that said, King of the Jews. 
It was put there to mock him. It wasn't put there to congratulate him and to applaud him. But three days later, he was resurrected and he was glorified. He took our sins upon himself. He defeated death and he defeated the grave. And there we see true splendor. And there we see true power. When King Ahasuerus died, he stayed dead. He had no power beyond the grave. But the power of Jesus overcomes the grave. The glory of Jesus goes on for all of eternity. When King Ahasuerus died, his, his splendor died with him. All of, that all of that beauty, no matter how amazing he was, it was all vain. It all rotted away. The splendor of this kingdom found in Esther 1. The power of this kingdom, it was vanity. In contrast to the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom that is eternally splendorous, a kingdom that is eternally powerful. Only King Jesus has this splendor and power. And that is the king that you need. You cannot be your own king. No one in this world can be your king. You cannot be your own trust. No one in this world can be your own trust. Jesus must be your trust. The only king with power beyond the, beyond the grave. And the only king with splendor that goes through all eternity. Now, what is it that appeals to you? Is it beauty, glory? Is it maybe power and authority? Well, you won't find that in this world like King Ahasuerus thought he did. It's vain and it's fading away and it won't ultimately satisfy or save you. You see, we were created for God and we were created for life with God. If you ever wonder, what is the whole purpose of our existence? Jesus reveals it to us. God reveals it to us. We were created for life with him. We were not created for the grave. We were not created for separation from him. And it is Jesus who brings us to that true purpose for our creation. It is Jesus who brings us to that perfect creation and life with our creator. Do you seek purpose in this world? It is Jesus who offers you that purpose. It is that purpose that is perfect love with your creator. Perfect love and harmony with those around you, those who love him. And his kingdom is true life. Jesus, in contrast to all the things around us, does not lie when he says, I am life, live for me. Jesus tells us that he is the end and the goal of our lives. And we trust him, our eternal, splendorous, and powerful king. We trust him who does not lie in his truth himself. So Christians, as you look at this land of exile, and as eventually we will look into this land of exile here in Esther, remember, we do not get lost in the desires of this world. No, we look past the vanity of this world. 
to our King Jesus because he is our only rock and our only salvation. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, Lord, we pray that as your people, God, Lord, we pray that we would not put our trust in the things of this world, Lord, that we would not believe in them, and Lord, that we would not even believe ourselves. Lord, we cannot stop our hair from turning gray. We cannot add to our height or take away from our height. Lord, we don't have the power of life and death in our hands, but you do. Lord, I pray that we would look to our King, King Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not know you, Lord, that they would see that ultimate power and ultimate glory is in you. Lord, that in your Son is the purpose for our existence. Lord, that in Jesus we see why we were created. That we were created to be with you, Lord, in perfect creation and perfect harmony with you. And God, I pray that you would reveal that to all of us here today. Lord, as we go out and as we live amongst those in this world, Lord, I ask that we would glorify your son's name. God, that we would do good and that we would seek to be obedient to, towards you with perfect love towards you and to neighbor. For God, we ask all of this in your son's name we pray. Amen.